This is episode 22 of the Christian Travelers Network. Today, Kate Michelle from Sacred Wanderings joins us to share about some of her experiences traveling to sacred sites. Welcome to the Christian Travelers Network, where travel stories, community, and scripture combine. Hey, Christian Travelers, so glad that you're here. Today we have an awesome guest, Kate Michelle, who will be talking about some of her experiences going to sacred sites. But before we dive in, I want to once again invite you to join us on Facebook and Instagram and join in some of our travel discussions. We'd love to hear from you. And without further ado, Kate Michelle is a wandering theologian, a pilgrim, and part-time foster mom. Kate's mission is to see all of the world's great spiritual and religious sites and share how you can too. Kate believes spiritual and religious travel builds peace and tolerance in our fractured world. Kate holds an MDiv in theology and ethics and is a pastor with Mennonite Church USA. When she's not on a lawn plane, train, or car ride, she works as a chaplain with critically ill children and their families and specializes in researching the intersection of religion and medicine. You can frequently find her with a baby on her back, drinking coffee in one hand with wine in the other, and singing made-up show tunes to describe her everyday life. Hey Kate, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing good. It's so good to have you here. But I'm very curious, how, uh, with all of these different experiences, how do you manage to balance all of it? Oh my goodness. Uh, I don't necessarily. I think I've, at some point I got to the point where I decided balance was overrated. Um, (laughs) No, you know, I always um, say that, you know, I always say I'm a part-time foster mom because we do um, something called respite foster care. So we take kiddos who just need a couple days to a week here and there. Um, And that's a great way for me to stay involved with parenting, um, but then be able to have space to travel um, and do my work as well. Um, And I've been really lucky. Um, I'm a pastor, I'm a licensed pastor in the Mennonite Church USA, but I work for a hospital. Uh, But because I do research, I actually work on a lot of grants, which means I sometimes can do my work from abroad. Um, And that's been a big way that I've been able to travel, as well as um, going to conferences in places that I'm really interested in going anyway. Um, So like last summer, um, actually it was not summer, it was in February, not summer at all. Um, I got to go to Amsterdam to speak at a chaplaincy conference there and then was able to extend my trip. Um, So that's, you know, it's little ways sometimes to find space to travel um, and space to do the things you're passionate about that maybe don't fit what the outside culture thinks is sort of the norm, right? You're either a parent or you're not a parent. Most people aren't like me, a part-time parent. Um, You know, you either travel or you're working, but I've been able to combine some of those things. Wow, that is really cool. So do you have like a scientific background as well if you're doing research? So I do have a master's in public health. Um, I got that after I started doing the research. I do something called qualitative research, um, which actually is going to feel familiar to you because it's a little bit what we're doing right here. Um, I do really intensive interviews with um, religious individuals who've made difficult healthcare decisions to understand how their faith played a role in that. Um, and then there's quite a, a rigorous analysis process. Um, so I went to school to learn more about that analysis and to understand 
um, a little bit more about healthcare, but I'm also a um, certified chaplain as well, which requires a certain amount of healthcare knowledge. And, you know, I've been doing that for so many years, you sort of absorb the knowledge over time. Um, and I've had some great mentors. So, you know, people who ask me for career advice, my number one thing is find great mentors, because that's the space you can learn the most. That is so incredibly true. So what first like sparked your interest in traveling internationally? Yeah, so um, I tell the story a little bit. My dad is was a journalist. Um, he was on TV news when I was a child. And so he traveled a ton. So I grew up in a house, you know, we had this box on our mantle that had coins and bills from all over the world. Um, and I love to go and like, you know, he'd say, can you quick find the Russian money? And I'd have to, you know, figure out which ones were from Russia or which ones were from China. Um, so I grew up with this like international sensibility. We actually lived in Belfast for a time when I was really, really little, um, kind of right in the middle of some of the violence that was happening there. Although I tell people, I remember the bathtub in the place we lived, that's it. Um, wasn't exactly traumatic for me, um, but it did shape me, right? Like, I think especially as an American, it is easy to sort of stay very, um, you know, unfortunately we live in a segregated society where it's easy to stay, you know, kind of siloed in our own space with our own kinds of people. Um, and I'm lucky that I grew up with um, a parent who just had this sort of large worldview. Um, I remember even in college, I'd call my mom and say, hey, I have this question I need to ask dad. She's like, sorry, I think he's in the UAE. He might be in Kuwait at this point. I have no idea when he's going to be back. Um, so I, I lived with that, even though I wasn't traveling a ton. We took a couple trips, mostly to, you know, the places that I sometimes see a lot of Americans going to, because I think there are places that we have some some language around and places we have some knowledge of. So London. So we did a big London trip um, when I was 12 or 13. Um, and I went back to Scotland when I was 15. So lots of UK travel. Um, and then when I was in seminary, um, I won a fellowship um, to do some travel that had a theological purpose. And I thought, okay, this is pretty cool. Um, but I didn't really understand what that meant. And, you know, does that just mean I go and I see a whole bunch of churches? Um, and speaking of mentors, I ended up going and speaking to one of my professors um, who I knew had traveled because he would bring up his travels in our classes. And I thought, well, maybe he'll have some advice for me. Um, and the first thing he asked me was a little bit strange. I do speak French. My dad is French Canadian. Um, even though he, well, he's French Canadian, but has lived in the U.S. his whole life. So I don't feel Canadian in any way. It's just a language that we have. Um, and my professor said, well, do you speak French? And I said, yeah, why does that matter? And he said, I've actually been praying for somebody to have the time and the money to go abroad to this monastery that our denomination had relationships with in the 80s. And the relationship has completely fallen away. And I've really been convicted that we need to like revive it. But I haven't had a student who speaks French well enough to go and who has the time and money. And here I was, I had the time, I had the money and I spoke French. Um, it was just kind of one of those moments like, okay, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. I was really, um, I had a lot of anxiety in that period of my life. I was really struggling with um, anxiety and 
you know, the idea of just getting on a plane by myself to go to Europe was pretty terrifying. Um, But I, again, had friends that set me up with the Mennonite Center in Paris. Um, Lots of denominations have missionaries or educational centers in various places around the world, and they're, you know, happy to host you if you're able to um, get there. And so I contacted the Mennonite Center. So I first went to Paris for a week by myself. Um, and I just focused on like not having a schedule and just enjoying. Um, and then I went to this monastery and it really changed my life. I mean, I would never think of myself as a monastic person. Um, my background, you know, is very action oriented where, um, Yeah, the Mennonites are just very action-oriented. And so the idea of going to a place to pray contemplatively for four times a day was like, where? what am I doing here? <laughs> and at the same time, it was, it was challenging in all the right ways. Yeah. And um, I've gone back many times now. Um, the monastery is called Grand Shaw. You may be familiar with Tizé, um, the monastery of Tizé in Europe. Um, this was actually the precursor to Tizé. Um, Brother Roger of Tizé wanted actually to join the sisters mm-hmm. and to make Grandchamp a um, co-ed, so men and women monastery, and they actually told him no. <laughs> and that's when he went to found Tizé. Um, but they've been in close relationship, and Grandchamp is actually the retreat house for the Tizé brothers. Um, but it's much, much, much smaller, and there's maybe five or six young people that come a summer Um, because that's not their main ministry. But it really changed my life just having these relationships. You know, I was all the way in Switzerland at this point. So this is French-speaking Switzerland. And there were people that knew my friends um, back in Elkhart, Indiana. So it was just amazing to be there. Um, You know, gave me a lot of space. You know, the silence at a silent monastery. And clearly I can talk a lot. So not maybe like the first thing I would think of was so good for me. And that really sparked this idea that like travel can be about relationships. Travel can be about understanding traditions that are different than your own, um, but that can deeply enrich your own prayer life and your own spirituality. Um, And travel isn't selfish. I think I just, it, travel always seemed like this thing to me that was maybe a bonus if, you know, once you have a job and the career and the kids, like maybe you take a vacation here and there. And one of the realities about Europe is that it's not that way over there. Most people have three or four weeks in a chunk of vacation time. And that's just typical. You know, if I'm in Switzerland in July, all the shops are closed and it just says, sorry, we're closed for vacation. Um, And we don't do that here. And so, you know, in Europe, travel isn't this luxury. It's just a part of how people live in the world. And I really came to see that that was a huge priority for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it really changed my life. So that's, that's the long story of how I ended up sort of prioritizing travel as a big part of my life. Yes. Um, I noticed like in American culture, it's like we prioritize busyness. Busyness means you're, you're Mm -hmm. successful, you're doing things right. But this had to be like a totally different culture shock of its own. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. Monastery life. Monastery life is maybe what Americans would call busy. Um, It's not like you're sitting and staring at walls all day. There's work to be done in a community of, you know, 50, 60 women living together. Um, But it's intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's it's more intentional action and intentional reflection than mindless busyness. Um, what does like a day in the life in a monastery look like? So every monastery is different is, you know, the one thing that I say, but at Grandchamp, they um, rise quite early. Um, most of the professed sisters there do rise fairly early. Most of them go to sleep reading the gospel reading for the next day. So that's kind of a nice rhythm. Like they start the day almost the night before with the gospel reading um, rise to reread it. And then the first prayer is at seven, um, breakfast after prayers. And then um, for me, because I'm what's called a volunteer, a volunteer. So we have a meeting at nine, just, you know, what's going to happen in the day. We say some prayers and then we work from nine to noon. Um, and work is never meant to be, you know, again, quick and hurried and pressured, but quality. Right. So between nine and noon, many days that I'm there, I will set all of the tables for lunch, wash the floors. Um, and when you are setting tables for 60 people, it it takes mm-hmm. some time. Um, and then there'll be noon prayers, lunch and then nap time, which is my favorite <laughs> part. Um, but I love that. I love that, like actual intentional rest is built into the day. Um, and then there'll be another work period from three to six in the afternoon. Uh, prayers again, dinner, um, and then a break, and then prayers before bed. And I remember the first time I was there, I was like, gosh, I don't need to pray four times a day. You know, that's that's a little much. Um, you know, especially in this environment where it's not like I'm watching TV or there's all these things to distract me. But oh my gosh, it's amazing how I get to those lunch prayers. And I'm like, I've completely forgotten to like think about God in the last two hours. Um like each time it's like, wow, this is almost a minimum (laughs) four times a day here. I thought it was a maximum. So that is a bit of a day in the life there. Um, And it's something I strive to recreate at home. I do find it difficult. Um, You know, modern life is not set up to give you a nap time after lunch, (laughs) (laughs) but I try. Okay. So from this, you've kind of had a spark in sacred sites. So well, how would you define sacred sites and are they specifically Christian or how do you interpret that? Yeah. So um, I love the word sacred. Um, in the research I do and in chaplaincy, it's sort of something that is held very close, that is held very dear, that has some sort of um, transcendent and divine properties, you know, to it. So no, I don't define sacred sites as distinctly Christian. Um, I certainly think that it's important um, for Christians to travel to sites that maybe would sort of be labeled Muslim or Hindu um, sites, because I it's, it's hard to understand the import and the impact of other faiths on others until you're really standing there and you're in the midst of it, like physically being in places is so different than reading about them. Um, You know, I can read a list of, you know, the five most important things in Islam and it just doesn't, it doesn't strike me as beautiful and, you know, having connections to my own faith until I'm there. Um, I do find myself tending to travel to Christian sites. Um, Some of that has just been practical. I haven't had as much opportunity to travel Um, in Southeast Asia, like a lot of my friends have, but that's high on my list. Um, 
you know, so yeah, cathedrals, but I also think, you know, I certainly think a lot about monastery travel, which a lot of people don't, um, but there are so many monasteries that will host um, visitors, whether sort of more as a hotel environment or to stay and partake in the life. Um, yeah, I, you know, one of my favorite things I got to do was drive through central Portugal and visit their UNESCO World Heritage monasteries. Um, there are also sacred sites that maybe um, are ancient sacred sites, right? So Stonehenge is one that comes to mind. Um, you know, something about that space and those people, something about that, you know, sparked a sense of wanting to do something great. And I love to sort of just ponder those things. Um, and I don't think for me that that, you know, loosens or weakens my own Christian faith. Um, and I am an interreligious chaplain as well. So I work with people of all faiths. Um, and I think it's a really incredible way to do travel, to sort of prioritize getting to these places um, that have some meaning and have some real impact on history as well. That's really cool. So how many sacred sites would you say you've been to? Any idea? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I haven't actually, I'm not much of a cataloger. Um, Someone the other day asked me how many countries I'd been to, and I still am not sure I have an answer. Um, quite a few. Um, and some of that is just, you know, sometimes you can turn a smaller trip into what I would call sort of a religious travel trip or a sacred trip. You know, I went to Georgia, um, Georgia, the state. I also went to Georgia, the country this year, but I went to Georgia, the state um, with my mom in January to check up on my grandparents um, and was able to take a day to go and spend a lot of time at the cathedral there. Um, so I would certainly consider that like a sacred site, you know, hundreds, I'm sure at this point, but I, you know, like I said, I don't really catalog them. When I was in Armenia, I swear I probably saw 50 monasteries. So that was pretty amazing. Okay. So do you have like any memorable moments that really like stand out from any of those sites? Oof. You know, it's probably so many, it's hard to fully like pull out individual moments. I, it's interesting how like your own, you know, our own life story really impacts how we travel is just, it's one of the realities, right? It impacts what we're interested in. Um, I have a very like strong memory of being at the Duomo in Milan. Um, so if you've seen pictures of the Duomo, it's sort of this like white marble facade. I mean, it's pretty remarkable in terms of churches. It's very recognizable. Um, and the day before I had left Grandchamp, this monastery, um, I had been there for a couple of weeks and I was on the train to Italy when I got some text messages um, because I finally gotten Wi-Fi back actually on the train that one of the little girls that we'd had in foster care here at home, um, we'd had her for a very long time, about a year, um, was had, she had ended up in Florida with her grandparents um, and they had basically abandoned her. Um, and she was two and a half years old. It's just kind of like a horrific thing to think. Um, and it was really painful. And she was going to a safe home that likely I they will be able to adopt her actually now, um, which was also a bit sad because it meant she wasn't going to, you know, be adopted by us, which was a bit tough. Um, but just lots of feelings, right? And these things happen when we travel. I, 
I talk to more people I talk to than not, you know, have had bad news while they're traveling or tough things happen. Um, and that afternoon I like went to this cathedral, um, and I come from a tradition that is not one that sort of venerates Mary or the Madonna and child in the same way that Roman Catholicism does. Um, Mennonites, um, you kind of think of the Amish, you've got a little bit of what Mennonites are. You know, we tend to not have icons and things like that. Um, but I was in this church um, and there was this beautiful icon of, of the Madonna and child. And I just started crying because it was like, you know, that at that moment, I just wanted to pray for her. And I ended up lighting a candle in front of this, just like, because I knew, you know, even though this was a child in foster care, I did know her biological mother well, and I knew she would be in a lot of pain right now and um, praying for the family that she was going to go to now. And um, so, you know, now, whenever I think of the Dromo in Milan, you know, I do remember, you know, the tour I took and some of the interesting facts, but there's this deeper sort of memory associated with it. And, and it's not a bad memory. It was a tough thing, but having the space also to have that peace and to light that candle on my travels was so powerful for me um, that it's really a place I, it's like on my priority list to go back because I really want to sort of be there again um, now that different things have changed um, and see how I feel that second time. So it's interesting how these things, you know, our own story and our own memories really impact which travel sites are so powerful for us as well. Yes, God has a way of bringing it all together in mm-hmm. impactful ways. <laughs> yes, and I think travel is such a great way to see that. Um, you know, we talk, I think we talk in the church, I'm sure you've heard this, Sarah, like you, know, you sometimes have to walk out in faith mm-hmm. and do hard things mm-hmm. to see God working. Um, and travel has definitely been a space where you are vulnerable when you're traveling, right? It's a reason a lot of people don't travel because there's a vulnerability to it, um, especially traveling alone, alone as a woman, all of these pieces. Um, but it also like that vulnerability um, and being alone and all these pieces, it opens up so many opportunities to see God working and to really recognize what is harder, what is true, but harder for me to see in my daily life. That is God is taking care of all the details. Um, but when I'm traveling, I have a chance to see that a little bit more sort of in my face. <laughs> Agreed. And that was one of the reasons that I even started this network in the first place was because I just felt God really is a lot more evident when we step out in faith. And one of the places that we tend to do that more is while we're traveling. So do you have any stories about like times when you really connected with people at sacred sites or just really felt God's presence? outside of that story (laughs) or yeah I mean definitely the story I just shared was one where I felt God's presence um I have met amazing people on my travels so I just feel um I feel super blessed by that I I increasingly think you know as I really do see Um, our world getting to a place where there's sort of an us-them mentality, um, that having relationships with people outside of the U.S., with people who've lived very different stories is so important. Um, At the monastery, Grand Champ, I've met so many incredible young women, um, many of whom I keep in contact with. I just 
um, spent three days in Istanbul with one of my best friends from the monastery, um, who's actually from Germany, but we met in Istanbul to have a fun weekend together and visit uh, sacred sites. So we went to see the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque um, together, and it was really great to have her there as a Christian as well, um, just to to talk about and process the beauty that we were seeing in Istanbul. Um, I also, like, I remember I was at a hostel in Venice. It was a really cool hostel I picked because it um, was a converted seminary, um, which was pretty cool. Like at one point it was a training college for priests, but then they turned it into a youth hostel. Um, And because it's like Venice, I guess, and this is a really old building, I got totally lost inside the building trying to get out. Like I couldn't figure out how to get out of this building. Um, And I ran into this young woman and she's like carrying this bottle of wine and she's like, how do we get out of here? And I'm like, I have no idea. Um, So we finally, she's like, I'm just trying to go and like find the bar for someone to like, just help me open this bottle. And so we finally found our way out. It was like borderline hilarious how confusing this building was. Um, And, you know, so she starts walking to the bar and she comes back and she's like, she's like, I have to drink this whole bottle tonight because I'm flying out tomorrow. And it was a gift. Like, do you care to just have a glass of wine with me? And I was like, sure, why not? Like, she seems nice. She's British. Um, And so we get to talking and I'm sometimes a bit reluctant. Um, And I come from also a non-evangelical tradition, which is a bit you know, American Christianity tends towards the evangelical and Mennonites are very much of the um, preach the gospel at all times and only if absolutely necessary use words. We're very action oriented. We're very sort of relief and development oriented. So I tend to just struggle a bit to say, oh, I'm a Christian and that's why I'm here. Um, so I, I was being a bit reserved. She's, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, do I tell her I'm a chaplain? I, you know, I work with really sick kids and a lot of people, like I tell them what I do and there's just this, oh my gosh, like I do not have a good party conversation job um, (laughs) at all. Oh my gosh. Um, But I I just decided to say, so I'm like, well, I'm a chaplain and um, I'm a pastor too, but I work in this hospital. And she was like, that's so funny. She's like, and I, and I said, I said, I'm always a little reluctant to say this because I never want people to like you know, think differently of me in some way. Um, And she's like, that's so funny. I pastor a church in London. Um, And so we got to have this great theological conversation um, about church planting and chaplaincy. And um, it was just, yeah, like we got lost together inside of a building. Um, And then this is what happened. So there are those moments. um, And so many people I still keep in touch with. And, you know, I have so many friends in London now. Um, disclosure, my better half is from London. And so, you know, we go over often to see their family, but, you know, I have so many friends in London to visit and it's just such a, you know, it's so lovely knowing people from different denominations and different backgrounds and um, having such a network of people that I can talk about faith with, that it's not a taboo subject um, that I just really love. So that was another amazing moment. That's wonderful. So um, how do you go about planning your trips, finding accommodations? And is it primarily focused on the sacred sites? Or do you just kind of incorporate it into other trips? Like what is your method for planning these kinds of trips? 
Yeah. So trip planning is such a thing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I have been really awful lately about last minute trip planning. <laughs> um, gosh, we um, had some unexpected time off last summer and um, it was like, Meh, let's just stay in the country or like do something small. And like, it was like a Tuesday and I happened to find really good price tickets and accommodation in Mexico City starting on Friday. Um, So we just flew off to Mexico City and it was such a great trip actually, partially because I had so few expectations. Um, You know, I hadn't spent three, four, five months knowing this was going to be my only vacation time, you know, planning every little thing that we were going to do, which really helped. And I've I've taken that, that was well over a year ago now, and I've kind of taken that philosophy into some of my trip planning at this point. I do have like a running bucket list, as I think a lot of us do, Um, and it is organized around sacred sites, religious sites. Um, I have really noticed about myself that I don't have a need to go somewhere just because everybody else is. you know, I'm sure, Sarah, like you do this work in travel, you've heard the word over tourism a thousand times. Because um, <laughs> it's and sustainable travel, like it's such, it's a buzzword in travel. And I, you know, I really feel like if you want to go to a place, because you really want to see it, like, don't let the fact that it's over touristed, like keep you away. And at the same time, I do see, and I see this from a lot of Americans, again, because I think we don't have a lot of vacation time. So it's this idea of we've got to make the absolute most, you know, kind of going to the same few places in Europe, London, Rome is one. Um, And I have had my best travel experiences really outside of that sort of main circle. I've been to Italy um, twice in the last year. And I've never been below Milan. Like I'm always going to the north of Italy <laughs> and I love it there. And so part of me is like, why, why expand until there's a point where I really feel called to do that? Um, so like I ended up in Portugal, I had that conference in Amsterdam and I extended my time and then went to Portugal somewhat because a lot of my friends had gone and said it was great, but I decided I, you know, Lisbon is lovely, but again, it's pretty crowded It's also really hilly. Actually, all of Portugal was really hilly. Um, And I thought, you know, what if there are places that have really interesting monasteries and sacred sites that not, you know, everyone's going to? And so I ended up in central Portugal for the vast majority of my time there. You know, most people spend most time in Porto and Lisbon. And I spent a day in Porto and a day in Lisbon and five days in central Portugal. So I kind of did it differently. Um, And it was brilliant. I mean, I went to this monastery that had been built in um, the 10th century, had been a functioning monastery for so many years, and then had flooded and been completely abandoned. Um, And you can go and tour it. And I was the only one there. So it's this like beautiful morning light. I'm in this, I mean, arches and carvings and Portuguese tile in some of the rooms like it was so cool 
Um, and this cloister that most of it had fallen, but like you can definitely still see the outline of it. And the cathedral part of the monastery itself had not fallen. So it's just, I mean, it was amazing. And it was just me. Um, so a lot of my planning has been a bit happenstance and around, you know, I hear about places and then I, you know, look it up. I have like a thousand um, price tracking going on my Google flights um, just to sort of get an idea of, you know, where things are. I certainly do use um, sites like um, Scott's Cheap Flights and um, Secret Flying and some other deal sites because it is helpful. Um, every once in a while, I'll have a place kind of in mind and then I'll see that alert that I can actually yeah. get there for affordably. Um, and that sort of sparks me to really go. Um, Armenia, that was one that I really, um, it had been on my mind for a while. And then I ended up like my library had this DVD available one day and I just randomly picked it up. It was about Armenian churches. And I was like, wow, these are pretty incredible buildings. And, um, I remembered in seminary, like my professor, the same one that sent me to Grandchamp actually saying like Armenia is the world's oldest Christian country. And me kind of feeling a bit ashamed that I hadn't known that. Um, so it had been on my mind. And then I got this DVD from the library a couple of months ago. Um, and I knew I had some space in my schedule where I could work from abroad. I had to write another grant. Um, so when I'm doing a lot of writing, I can sometimes do that from abroad. And um, so that was pretty last minute. I, I ended up buying my actual ticket and I was gone a grand total of seven weeks. Wow. So like it was a big plane ticket to buy <laughs> uh, <laughs> five days before I left, but <laughs> I did. Um, and it was pretty crazy. But um, a lot, again, a lot of pieces came together. So I don't recommend unplanned traveling. Um you know, I had my hotel settled. I had some different things settled. Um, and at the same time, it allows for a sort of freedom, which I do really appreciate as a spiritual traveler. Like I don't want my day so chocked full of must-dos and Instagram photos and all of these pieces um, that I don't have time to just be. Um, because travel is a great space to just sort of be reminded um, that God loves us exactly as we are. Um, and spending that time just being in a place is so important as well. So <laughs> yeah, that's probably not a helpful answer for trip planners. But um, I also, I really encourage people to just, you know, I think we we do this thing with travel where it's like, oh, I want to go here. But then you come up with a whole bunch of reasons why it's impractical, why you'll never have the time, why that plane ticket is too expensive. Um, or whatnot. And I am all about financial responsibility. I've got a great financial planner. I work on my investments. Um, but I also think that travel enriches us so much. It needs to be something that we prioritize. And every once in a while, I think it's really okay to just say, no, I do want to go there. That's something that I want to see. And I'm going to do it now. Um, yeah, those have been some of the best trips of my life. Okay, so I have a question about that seven-week trip. Um, when you, yeah. like, packed up and left and you really didn't have, like, a plan per se, oh, how did you pack? How did you prepare to pack for that? 
Right. That's a great question. Um, so I've gotten pretty good. I, when I go to Grand Champ, which is the monastery, I do have laundry there, which helps. Um, actually, it's quite funny. They, um, at the monastery, they sort their laundry into like 19 different categories. I've never, it's how they manage like the load size, right? Because you're doing 60 people's laundry every week. Um, but it literally is like, there's a category for handkerchiefs. There's a category for white handkerchiefs. There's a category for colored handkerchiefs. Um, and all of our clothes are embroidered with colors or our names. So I know all my Grand Chant clothes because they all have like this pink X in, in them, mm-hmm. um, which means they're my, they're my monastery clothes. So I've gotten pretty good at packing um, with two weeks worth of clothes um, and knowing over time like what I really need and what I don't really need. Um, so that has kind of been the basis. I do use packing cubes. I also like the thing that I cannot live without is um, packing. Um, they're like compression bags. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those are so handy. <laughs> I, yeah, those I could not possibly pack without them. I also really work hard to pack like a capsule wardrobe when I pack. So things can kind of make multiple different outfits. Um, Shoes, I just, like, that's what I've really had to, like, no, I don't need more than three pairs. I bring a pair of walking boots that are, like, they're they're not hiking boots. They're just, mm-hmm. like, everyday boots. Kind of cute, but they do keep the rain out. Um, and I pack, like, a pair of Toms, basically. Um, I, I don't know. I buy them from Target, though. They're definitely not <laughs> on brand. Um, and then my trainers, um that work also for hiking. So it, it takes time. The long trip to Armenia, I didn't have as much access to laundry. So the other thing I encourage people to do is like, I pack four pairs of underwear when I go abroad and I just wash them in the sink every night um, and hang them to dry. It's slightly annoying, but um, it works fine. Although somehow I ended up with like 20 pairs of socks this last trip and four pairs of underwear, which was not an efficient system. Um, so do I do tell people to pack a day before. So as opposed to me, like packing the morning of um, and have a sturdy suitcase, I do pack in a carry on. I do as of right now pack in an American sized carry on. So European sized carry ons are completely different than American sized carry ons. Um, And I just know that I'm going to have to pay to check it when I use European carriers like EasyJet or Ryanair. Um, I flew to Russia in S7, which is a Russian European carrier. All of those will not accept an American-sized carry-on as a carry-on. So if you're really a budget traveler, you have to pack in a European-sized carry-on. I mean, even now, Ryanair, actually, you still have to pay for your carry-on. They changed that last year. Um, so that's just a tip. Like I'm fine to just pay the check bag fee, but you do buy it ahead of time. Never buy it at the airport because it's way more expensive. Interesting. Okay. Well, um, kind of wrapping it up. I always love to ask people on my podcast, what has been the biggest God moment you've had in all of your travels? Oh, goodness. That's such a great question. Um, I don't know. Again, it's hard to like come up with the one. I think I've shared a couple of my like 
sort of deeper stories. Um, you know, being in Armenia was its own sort of, it wasn't a God moment. I, I sometimes, the definition of that is like some, sometime when God provided for you in sort of an unexpected way. That certainly happened like many, many, many times. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking right now of just being in Armenia in churches, you know, we were in a church that was built in the fourth century. That's literally 300 years after Christ. Um, and being in this church where people have been continuously worshiping Jesus for, you know, what is it now? A thousand, seven hundred years? Um, well, it's just, I mean, it's just so completely beyond what we have here in the United States. Um, and incredible to see this tradition. I mean, it really, so that was a God moment in the sense it was very, very humbling. Um, I love my faith tradition. Um, being Mennonite, I consider it a very historical tradition. Um, and yet this just, you know, was so humbling because it's like, okay, my faith tradition is an absolute infant baby <laughs> compared to, you know, the Armenian Apostolic Church. And, um, you know, I, because I'm clergy, I was able to meet with some bishops and priests while I was there. And just, you know, being able to hear about their theology and talk about our differences was really, um, I always find those real God moments just to learn from others and have that like really meaningful conversation. Um, yeah. And there's just, there's just no way those things would happen um, here in Ohio. <laughs> so just having those opportunities to stand there um, to think about the people that have come before in Armenia, you know, the Armenian genocide and, you know, what they suffered um, in many ways for their faith and think about, you know, how am I suffering for my faith? And um, I think it was just really, really meaningful for me. That's really cool. Well, Kate, we have enjoyed having you on our podcast. Where can our listeners find you on social media and connect with you? Yeah, so I write, um, and I do have a post with more information about the monastery that I've shared about um, at sacredwanderings.com. Um, and I believe on the homepage, if you scroll down, there's a direct link to um, the post about Grandchamp, um, as well as posts about Milan um, and some other places I mentioned. Um, and then the same would be on Instagram is at Sacred Wanderings. Um, and Facebook, there's a Sacred, Sacred Wanderings page as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thanks so much, Sarah. Well, Christian travelers, I really encourage you to check out Kate's resources. Um, but I also would like to ask you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. If we see your review, we'll be sure to mention you on our podcast. Your review helps us stay present and prevalent, and it also helps us to learn what you are enjoying about our podcast. But until next time, safe travels and God bless.